Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And that was the rocking tunes of Bruce Coburn there. Absolutely. And Bill, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas Mary's to you. Mary's baby is the... Well, Mary's baby and our great president. Why we can say with impunity, happy birthday, baby Jesus, who I used to think was a hippie loser until my evangelical friends... Well educated and poorly. I love the poorly educated, <laughs> and I've I, I let everyone say Merry Christmas. Yeah, I think uh, you would be a perfect person to play Herod, play Herod in the uh, Christmas pageant. <laughs> so that would be my vote. Herod's uh, palace was a dump, actually, <laughs> just like this White House. It actually, was pretty nice. <laughs> Herod was pretty good at that. Yeah, you two would have. He actually Herod actually built stuff. As opposed to what you did. So, anyway, uh, but uh, that's that. so. There, I just, I just, I just addressed me as Trump. I just, I addressed you as Trump, and I just, I just favored Herod the Great over Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Making Judea great again. Yeah. Well, you know, he did, he did, uh, he did uh, do some very impressive building. Yeah, and you know, killed people too. Lots of people, including his favorite wife. We've got lots of killers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> remember that? Do you remember that last year? This year? Well, Putin's a kill, kills jails, jails. He kills people. We've got lots of killers here, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, if Donald would have gone the Herod way, less alimony. I mean, yeah, just think about that for a moment, and then we're going to move on. But think about that, like the the the. the decrying of like you know Barack Obama Democrats were not being for American exceptionalism of Putin's a killer we're just we got lots of killers Bill <laughs> I mean there you go so let's go on and on to yeah, something that's good. with some transcendence so yeah. so uh, we were saying before in our little Facebook live warm up and, and we welcome, we thank you all for tuning into us by the way we were saying that uh, that it, Crackers and Grape Juice had a little live thing with the folks from Homebrewed Christianity with Trip Fuller, who we've recently become better acquainted with, and apparently in a robust discussion, Trip thought that the virgin birth had very little to commend to modern Christians, and that the textual witness is just kind of mythical um, balderdash. Let's call it. <laughs> well, as I said in the pre thing, that I hear that Trip actually. Was on a recent archaeological dig, and he actually actually has a sonogram of um, Mary's pregnancy, and ha- and is working on getting a, a DNA test. So we'll see for sure who the daddy a little is. halo in the sun. Who the daddy was? Yeah, no, that's an who. And he could he could put it on as Facebook meme. Who's your daddy, really? <laughs> actually, I think Tripp says that a uh, a Roman a Roman soldier's actually. No, I'm sorry, that's a second century forgery. I often I often combine process thought with second century forgeries it's just kind of what, <laughs> the way i go <laughs> by the way um tear hardy would like to see bill's christmas card he asks to trip <laughs> this is from facebook live <laughs> i tell you what i can I, come up with a deconstructionist uh, maybe we'll write that why don't, well, de- I, why, don't we, why don't we write that why don't we write one <laughs> with a link to this it could song. be it could be like that one's gone around facebook uh no jews no arabs 
just uh, you know, just uh, just some sheep and a jackass in the major. <laughs> that's all that's left. There you go. Or homeless people too. So anyway, yeah. Well, we've well, so we want to let's talk a little bit about the textual witness. Yeah, and uh, well, and I think. I mean, I think you start out by saying, and I, again, I, you know, I think this is, we're not people who are afraid of textual criticism. You start out by saying, John. Only if I'm getting tested on it. Only if tested on Then there's a little, the, the I brought, Hey, I'm giving my final tonight, my Church History 2 final. I have a copy for you if you want it. You have Take. to admit that memorizing the apparatus is not easy. Memorizing what? At the bottom of like a New Testament thing with like all the manuscript traditions oh, and all the oh, symbols. Oh, that's maddening. Yeah. Anyway, is that what you're checking out? Are you checking out which manuscript tradition we're going with today? No. No. All right. No, I think we start out with the fact is Mark, most people uh, think that Mark is the vast majority of scholars think Mark is the first one over Matthew and Luke. I know there's people who have different views about that, but Mark has no birth narrative. It just hits the ground running with uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. The Gospel of John doesn't have a birth narrative either. It places Christ, uh, the Jesus of Nazareth, as the you know incarnation of the Logos. So yeah, I, other, which you can argue is kind of a is a a kind of origin story. It's different no, it's than an, the birth. Yeah, it, it is an origin story, and there is this interesting. There's this interesting passage in John one. Uh, chapter one, verse twelve: For all who to all who received and who believed in his name. He gave power to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And there's an early man oh, we are getting manuscript. There's an early manuscript variation that says who was born not of blood. Now it's not the most reliable one. That's why, you know, we tend to render it who were born. But but it's but it is interesting that it it does seem to at least have some connection to there's something different about the origins of Jesus, which also makes different uh, those who are sort of reborn right. in, into the new humanity. Yeah, but, I, you know, I think the fact is the Gospel of John has no problem with the humanity of Christ. He's clearly portrayed as a human. But the origin story begins with this idea of, you know, really one of several foundational texts in the New Testament have to do with, um, have to do with the Incarnation. Can I point out that, that just quickly, that... This is an interesting in, in Pope Benedict's infancy narrative book, which is sort of his. He calls That's a very it, good book. He calls it the antechamber to the mystery. Right. Um, he points out this interesting question that Pilate asked Jesus, "Where are you from?" In John nineteen nine, and he says, "It's interesting. We know where people know right. where Nazareth or here. That you know, this is jo- J- Mary and allegedly you know Joseph, right, and, right. and yet they're also saying, who is this? Yeah, Isn't sure. he from? So he says that basically." Um, Jesus' providence, providence is both known and unknown, seemingly easy to establish, and yet not exhaustively. In Caesarea Philippi, Jesus will ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do, you, uh, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? Where is he from? The two questions are in, in extric- in separate, inseparably linked. So yeah, I think that that's an interesting. Well, and actually, that's almost Luke's or uh, John's version of the Markian silence. You know, this idea that Jesus doesn't want people, or particularly demons, he doesn't want you know he doesn't want anyone saying who he is, and that the only human voice to say Jesus is the Son of God in Mark's gospel is the centurion watching him die. So even that's part of the enigma of the life. In other words, you really can't identify who he is. Until, or at least as the son of God, until you watch him die. Because in Mark's uh, version of who do you say I am, 
Uh, they just say you are the Christ. They don't say they don't add Son of God. That's added in Matthew. So yeah, I think even in you know the, uh, there's <laughs> certainly the idea is Jesus is enigmatic is is pretty self evident. So let's move to the two uh, the two infant narratives. Let's go with uh, Matthew first. So Matthew, um, I think first of all it. Again, this is going to be simplistic, and uh, those of you who are uh, up on the the most current of Matthew, the Matthew scholarship over the last couple of years, feel free to correct us. But <clears throat> one of the things, you know, you have to look at each gospel has an agenda. Every gospel has an agenda. And part of Matthew's agenda is to have Jesus be the new Moses. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty – that's a clear theme. And being that he is establishing, and if you would, a new kind or genuine – a more genuine or the authentic or the ultimate fulfillment of Judaism. So the birth narrative in many ways has uh, not only that's, you know, the most. And also Matthew, there's five big, big, like sort of discourses. Jesus gives five major oral discourses. There are five books of Torah, right? There so there's yeah, kind of. So it's there all over the place, you know, things as obvious as the Sermon on the Mount, um, having Jesus have to go down to Egypt and, Ascend from Egypt, Egypt, the risk at his birth, but it's throughout the it's throughout the book, and um, and that you know it probably has in part to do with the polemic or the the group that Matthew was talking with and against. Uh, you know, a lot of scholars place Matthew coming together at the same time. Jews and followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, are are losing. Uh, Torah rights, so the where the you know the historical split between the synagogue and the church is going on. So that backdrop probably feeds into it. So the birth narratives, and also the idea of Jesus's fulfillment of prophecy, which is a very important theme in the early church. So all that together is really shaping that birth narrative. Um, I do think there's like some remarkably human touches in it as well. I mean, I think. Um, the whole Joseph, the vision coming to Joseph, that's a very powerful and poignant. I mean, again, I think St. Joseph uh, is one of the underrated characters in the in the birth narrative and, and his decency and his sacrifice comes out. So there's, there is this very powerful human portrait of that, uh, whereas Luke Mia Mary is, is truly the hero in Luke's gospel. I think Joseph is the unsung hero in Matthew's gospel. So I think to say that the narratives are controlled by a certain logical, certain theological framework is um, is really important. Even this, the idea of the Magi showing up, and um, and yet you know, and I think there's something about the fact that um, if Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the fact that they stayed around there for a while makes perfect sense. And so you do have the Magi coming at a later time. And um, certainly characters like the Magi were very prevalent. There's a Old Testament theological, you know, if you would, a, a re – there's a kind of Joseph Christology, meaning Joseph, the son of of, of uh, Israel, kind of Christology going on there as well because there's kind of some imitation of the people coming from the East and all kinds of different things. But, yeah, I think so that you have to – you do have to say this is what's going on. I mean the author of Matthew – is telegraphing this the whole way. So this is giving Matthew his due by saying the whole narrative, it's, the whole gospel is shaped by some of these central central theological themes that we just pointed out there. Yeah, and it's interesting too that, that his genealogy goes 14 generations. Like it's almost an ascent from Abraham to David. Right. And then a descent from Solomon 
to the exile, right. and then another ascent from the exile to Jesus. But there is this sense that even though legally Joseph is Jesus's father, right? It, 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 in some ways, he's not, and Mary represents a new beginning. I mean, and Mary is one of four women mentioned in the genealogy, but which and there's Gentile women, and we, you know we could say a lot about what that well, says. It's, it's a fairly shady. It's a right. very shady genealogy. I'm not shady from uh, you know the church lady kind of perspective, right. But not from God's perspective. right. But one of an inclusion, you know, reaching beyond the the current boundaries of the community, uh, but. I mean, Mary, Mary, and Mary does. I think the, the genealogy there is what Benedict's getting at: this new beginning. That, yeah. that, despite the fact that you can put your finger on geographical markers, you don't exactly know from whence he comes. Right. Right. So there you go. Yeah, and I, and again, I mean, uh, are we sidestepping historicity there, or is it? I mean, for me, part of it is how much. I mean. Again, the historical reality of Christ's coming, and I think the virgin birth is implicitly, you know, they're not explicitly uh, taught in Matthew as well as in Luke. Um, and that's, to me, that's an article of faith. I mean, again, if you have to start doing the metaphysics of any— uh, Wait, but Let's just say, though, it's not something, though, I mean, that it, it, this tradition developed—I mean, this tradition obviously predates the development— the the writing of those gospels, which are probably right, after yeah. the destruction of the temple, so it means it, before I would guess sometime, probably before the destruction of the temple, these traditions are in forms that are constructed enough to inherit. Yeah, it's so an, it's not like these are made up way after the event, after sort of smoking peyote with no, mystery it, cult followers. It, not that some of the early Christians might not have done something. Yeah. Well, it's it's all it's also a part. It's also connected with the rule of faith. So it's in the yeah. Kerygma. So it's not, uh, and this is pre-Augustinian too. So the virgin birth takes on a whole different, a whole different flavor after you know. First of all, the second century kind of has one kind of idealization of virginity. By the time we get to uh, the fourth century, has another version of it, and then Augustine comes up with another necessity for it. So in the first century, you don't need. You don't need Jesus to be born of a virgin not to be tainted of original sin. There's not that kind of doctrine of original sin floating around the same way it, it will later on. And so there's a lot of about the virginity of, of Mary that does take on a kind of, uh, it's a, uh, you know, an explanation looking for a problem, you know, in some of the later, you know, even when you get into the Immaculate Conception, things like that, those are, uh, those are kind of logical arguments that's, that come from problems that don't necessarily exist in the first Right, right. This is why some people would say that the virgin birth, the problem with it is it, it evinces a kind of Manichaean view of, of physical reality or a bad view of human sexuality, demonized. Well, there's, that didn't exist in the first century among the people who circulated these traditions. In a, in a, now, that's not to say that later, um, certain, no, certain contexts where the gospel took root, who had some of those issues and did some reinterpretation along those lines. But just because an idea is misinterpreted, doesn't, it doesn't then, it's a genealogical fallacy kind of thing. You're, you're, you're rooting right. to a genealogy that doesn't exist. Yeah, Jesus' celibacy, uh, John the Baptist's probably celibacy, uh, Paul's 
choosing to be celibate at a certain time, um, they're all kind of in an apocalyptic background, which is a very, a first century apocalyptic background is very different than a second, again, second century has one context, fourth century and beyond has a different. Although there were Jewish ascetic groups, uh, we know of a community in in Egypt, we know the Qumran community, community would periodically, uh, I mean, not perpetually, but would, would live lives of chastity. But it's a very, it has, it doesn't have to do with, uh, avoiding the, you know, the stain of original sin. No, in fact, there were these, rabbinically, we know, I think there was this in the Puritans too. If you weren't, if you're, if as a wife, you weren't getting enough of the sexual marital, you know, fulfillment, you could actually go and to the elders and say, you know, hey, we he needs to get on it, and <laughs> and if he was unemployed, you were entitled even more. <laughs> if he's employed, he could be tired. But if he's unemployed, what's he doing? So this is not from a community of people that are skittish yeah. about sex. Yep. Neither were the Puritans. To me, no, the Puritans were saucy. They were a saucy bunch. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Crest, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So can we say something? Okay, are we going to talk about Luke? Or can I, if we are, can I say something about the Magi? Sure, let's talk about the Magi. Then we'll move to Luke. So I think that it's interesting because um, you think about the traditions like of, of Balaam and soothsayers, and, and, and these are not so much kings. It's probably more like wise men, Magi, people that are looking to... Astrologers. Astrologers, metaphysics, be, religiosity. You know, Zoroastrian priest. Something like that. Um, it's interesting. Benedict notes that in in he has this in appendix that, that that you see kind of two concepts of magi. One, um, and, and he says that this is religion in general. How religion beca- can become the path to true knowledge, the path to Jesus Christ. Re- all religions, yeah, yeah I'm, can dry that way. But when it fails in his presence to open up to him and actually opposes the one. God and Savior, it becomes demonic and destructive. He says in the New Testament, then we encounter two contrasting types of magi. In St. Matthew's Magi story, we've got religious and philosophical wisdom that's obviously um, an incentive to set off in the right direction. And he talks about this one sort of um, conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, Saturn being the traditionally the, the planet that was associated with Marduk, 
and Jupiter being the one associated, at least in Babylon, with the God of the Jews. And so it's, there's something around 6 BC, this, yeah, this coalescing. Yeah. Yeah. And he cites some interesting German studies on this stuff. So whatever. I mean, but he says, you know, that, that, that you have these, these magi in Matthew's tradition that, um, you know, they're actually some earthly wisdom that's graced and really ultimately leads them literally to, in this story, to the Christ child. And then the Acts of the Apostles, you find the other type of Magus, right. one who pits his own power against the messenger of Jesus, thereby sides with the demons, even though Jesus has already defeated them. So, but in it, you know, you have these people that this is this is you know we could say something like study of religion or philosophy or you know Wissenschaft, some Wissenschaft of the time, such as it was, yeah, actually having the self-transcendent moment and setting off people on a journey towards the revelation of the God of Israel. Yeah, and I also could see some like mystic scholars being stupid enough to walk into Herod's court and say, hey, man, we were looking at the sky and there's a new king born in here. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about this king that I may worship him in glitz and glamour. (laughs) Because you you can see, like, they're not people who read newspapers. Because if they had read any any press, you know, if they'd done any forward research on Herod, you don't show up to Herod and say, "Hey, we've we've come to adore a rival born in your backyard." So, and I also wanted, you know, again, it's been frequently among critical scholarship saying that there's no record of you know the massacre of the infants. That's because it happened all the time. It wasn't I mean, because, <laughs> hey, you, because you know, kings and uh, invaders have been massacring children and innocents. You know, it was almost like a weekly occurrence. And so the fact that's like where like the Washington Post stopped categorizing the administration falsehoods. They're averaging five a day. <laughs> you can't so, catalog I mean, them all. I mean, it is a horrible thing. And um, it's funny. One, one time. Uh, Sunday fell on the twenty one one time Sunday fell on the twenty sixth, and so I was I was going to preach on the massacre of the innocents, and uh, one of my staffers said, "Could we maybe? It's very uplifting. Can, can we push that back a little bit?" But so the fact that it's fully within Herod's character, um, and the fact is we don't even we don't even have evidence that Nero existed till uh, what sixty years after his death. So the fact that there's not a uh, document saying, "Oh, by the way, this is really strange," but Herod killed a bunch of little children because he was threatened. Yeah, that that would not make that would that would uh, that would be buried on page five of the newspaper if it happened back in the day, which is horrible, and it tells you the kind of time uh, they lived. I'm glad, I'm glad we don't let innocent children be in harm's way in this country. I'm glad, absolutely that, not. I'm glad that uh, our, you know, that we, if something here horrible would happen to children in this country, that we would change laws to protect them. I'm glad that absolutely. we don't live in that ancient time. Blessed be. Uh, yeah, and 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 they are. I mean, the Magi do represent, like Mary, a new beginning. You know, this is a new journey of and, and Gentiles coming, I right? And in the, the bringing in of the Gentiles, which is a a more than a subtle theme in Matthew, in a couple of different places. Although I like the way in the genealogy. I mean, it is kind of subtle how he does it. All right, let's move to Brother Luke. First of all, I always like to begin with Luke's Gospel, basically. All right, as you know, there are other accounts, but they weren't very good, so I'm writing my own. Exactly. <laughs> That's my well, he was like the, he's like the, uh, you know, because there's this sense in which, like, Mary ponders these things in her heart, at least he tells us. And so maybe it's like, it's like um, somebody that, like, you know, was it Connie Chung that got Newt Gingrich's mother to say, you know, 
What's new? Think of Hillary Clinton. Oh, I don't want to say. Just between you. Just between me. He thinks she's a... So maybe Luke, maybe Luke kind of got her to open up and kind of... But well, there, is a, there is a sense that it seems that there's these traditions yeah. that illumine... Um, I mean, the, the, it's interesting, too. Like, the death and resurrection, this is the start of the proclamation, right? Yeah. Then, you know, you begin to sort of recall and make sense of mm-hmm. the life and teachings because of the significance of the death and resurrection, then you look back on the whole, it's just like if Abraham Lincoln hadn't won the presidential election, you'd write a really different biography. The whole, you you would cast all the events before that in an entirely different light. And likewise, the birth, you know, story is one of the last things to probably get reflected on. And yet it's, it go it, comes to illuminate Christological conversations. Well, I think it becomes, like and also I think the birth narrative becomes more important in the delay. I mean, so Christ, the delay of the return of Christ. So I think, you know, you see it. I mean, we have no way to really date John's gospel, so we'll leave that out of dating. But it makes sense that the latter two, you know, these two gospels, uh, def, you know, definitely written after the destruction of of Jerusalem. So, it's, I mean, we're in the second, or we're getting to the third generation of Christianity, that these issues would be interesting. And important, I, I, I think. Well, you know, when, you, when we talk about what's Luke's framework, I think Luke definitely has a uh, kind of a, a salvation history uh, kind of theme. That's a very Heigelschist. I was going to say that, but it's you know that's something that's been pretty accepted in Lukean scholarship for, gosh, I guess over sixty, seventy years. But one of the things I think is really important that you know the birth narrative is surrounded by these very important hymns and. That uh, and I think this comes from Raymond Brown uh, uh, or Fitzmaier, I can't, or Joseph Fitzmaier. I can't remember one of the two, but the, uh, but this idea of this community of devout, you know, apocalyptic Jews, if you would, that were kind of the faithful at that time, uh, that in many ways they represent a kind of intertestament piety or Second Temple uh, Jewish piety that is apocalyptic in this framework that in many ways as a theology that is still very much expected of the return. And I think, you know, the first century, um, there was a lot of divergent Jewish groups looking for something different to happen. So it, I think that idea of this piety of these hymns, whether it be, you know, uh, Zacharias or Elizabeth or Mary's song or, the, or all those things are very important um, important uh, insights into a kind of piety in which the um, you know, the followers of Jesus grew out of, at least the Jewish followers of Jesus. How many names are in Luke's genealogy? I don't know. Well, Bill, I mean, given your pension for history, I'm surprised. But anybody else on Facebook Live want to answer it? No, okay, seeing none. 76. Oh, so you had that memorized? No. An <laughs> ignoramus, the definition of ignoramus is someone who doesn't know something you just read. Um but it's interesting because right, <laughs> Tom Gillespie said that to students at Princeton Seminary once, like at the fr- a group of uh, incoming like, freshmen. He said, "Just remember, don't get too high and mighty. An ignoramus is just someone that doesn't know something you just read." So people come out of the library. And, no, but um, it, it, so I mean, you could think that this is kind of wacky or weird, but but um, Benedict thinks it's got um, something to do with, or could I mean, could be the structuring of historical time that in the ancient world that that um 
you know, an apocalyptic formula divides world history into 12 parts, and he's got all this numeric right. stuff. And we know the numeric stuff is it, it was huge. It's huge and it's important in those kind of circles. And Irenaeus is working off a text where it's 72, not 76. Right. Which probably got corrupted. I mean, right, a, right. the thing that makes less sense probably is the original text most of the time. But then there's connections with um, the elders, the apostles. But but generally, I mean, the thing, too, I think that whatever the numeric schemes mean, Luke is, consider, is, is concerned with taking things all the way back to the origins, to Adam. Right. Whose origin is God. And there's kind of universal and right. cosmic sort of right. origins. Yeah, I think the, also the interesting thing about Luke's gospel is there's a there's a uh, even though Luke is very careful, I mean he has a moderate kind of tense, so you don't so he's very kind of precise. Who is guilty for the death of Jesus? Is the Jewish leaders? It's not the Jewish people. It's not the Romans. You know, there's a kind of precision there that probably is is his natural way of trying to be. You know, he has a tendency to put a good face on things. For instance, I don't know that the uh, Council of Jerusalem <laughs> with, with, with Paul and Barnabas went quite as smoothly as he portrayed it. But anyway, Luke Luke has a tendency. He wants to put the best face for it. One of the things I think is is very intentional in the early, and the readers would have gotten this right, straight up, is the way he contrasts uh, the peace of Christ with the Pax Romana. Uh, Romana. And, and, and that happens on, in all kinds of subtle ways from the words of the angels, you know, taking direct quotes that would have been attributed to Caesar Augustus. And there's there's... There's a number, you know, the way the birth of Christ is contrasted to that of Caesar Augustus as well as the kind of peace that Jesus is offering as opposed to the brutality of the peace of Rome. That that agenda is very clear in there as well. Yeah, and the other thing, too, about the birth narratives, too, because the Annunciation follows a lot of Old Testament patterns. And, and I mean, I think the important thing to—I mean, Mary is in many ways the antitype, though, of— uh, say Sarah, or or um, uh, Samuel's mother. Wait, uh, Hannah's song. Hannah, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, which is in the Magnificat. Or yeah. or even Elizabeth, because all of those women are barren, right, and want a child, and they're blessed with a child, right, and that works in redemptive history. But their pregnancy enhances their lives, right. It, it, it's it's a part of human flourishing. Mary saying yes to the incarnation problematizes her life. In many ways, it destroys her life. Yeah. It I mean, destroys both her and Joseph's life. And then I had the prophecy of sword will pierce your very soul. Again, that's another very humanizing part of this whole story. Uh, you know, I think the other thing too, and this is, you know, a, I think the first person I heard say this was, it was a feminist reading of the text, but one of the powerful kind of stories, and, you know, Mary is this kind of radical virgin. She's a, uh, I mean, she's preaching a kind of a social revolution in in uh, in, um, yeah, in the Magnificat. Uh, Hippie loser. <laughs> yeah, she would probably not vote for the tax plan that the, that's being voted on today. There were good people on both sides. The infant slaughtered and Herod. Good people on both sides, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, she's the new Eve, and. Um, the salvation of the human race comes into the world without the agency of a man. Uh, and that's no small, powerful thing. In other words, it's funny to me. Can I take a swipe at the uh, – what, what are the guys – what are the, 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 guys, the people who 
pretend that they don't believe in subjecting women, but do it anyway. Complementarians. Complementarians. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what the complementarians miss is that it's, you know, the enmity, the hierarchy that happens in the fall, in the fall, <laughs> is redeemed in the coming of Christ. And Mary, um, Theotokos, the mother of God, uh, brings the salvation of the human race by herself. I mean, with the help of God, but not with the help of a human Male. Well, I'm su- I'm surprised you didn't bring this up, but I'll reference it since you didn't. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux, one of his Advent homilies, talks about how how human how basically the world was enshrouded in darkness by an abuse of human freedom, and talks about how God needs to go back in from the inside out, and and pictures actually Mary, the whole kind of cosmos, the angels, like creation, looking, waiting to see what she'll do, like if she'll sh- shirk back, and he he's. He's thinking she she's hesitating, Bernard's like, will her, her humility hold her back? Just this once, Bernard tells her, don't be humble, but be daring. Give us your yes. And this is the crucial moment from her lips, from her heart. The answer comes, let it be according to your word. It's this moment of free, humble, yet magnanimous obedience. And, and it's in her yes to the miracle of grace that Adam and Eve's no to God is, is, is the beginning of it is undone there. Yeah. It's the beginning not, of the undoing. Did you, that's like, a, you just gave me a Christmas present, didn't you? By quoting Bernard. I'm just saying, I mean, normally I, re- I rely well, on that you. Makes to, me, that makes that moves there you, go. Me. you know, there one of the things I think too is that in John's gospel, Mary is kind of a, a icon of the church. Uh, in Mark's gospel, she's just a messed up human like the rest of us. In other words, she doesn't understand. She's confused, just like all the people close to Jesus don't understand. In Luke's gospel, she's pretty consistently the model of the Christian disciple. In other words, that, you know, what her yes is, it models what our yes needs to be as well. Yeah. yeah, And this is why, I mean, the Roman Catholic catechism, the new catechism begins ecclesiology with Mariology. Because if she's yeah. a kind of primal, prime disciple. And as Meister Eckhart said, we, we must consent for the word to be born in us as well, the Logos to be born in us, just like Mary did. Yeah. We're going back to Irenaeus. We could say, how shall man pass into God unless God has first passed into man? How is mankind to escape this birth into death unless he were born again through faith by that new birth from the Virgin, the sign of salvation that is God's wonderful and unmistakable gift. To go back to antiquity, you know. Yeah. You, you know, I, I, to me, and maybe to sum up this part, maybe we should do this, maybe this should be a two-parter because we have a lot of other stuff to talk about. Okay, we could do that. Yeah. But so I, why, why don't we, yeah, why don't we, we'll, part two will be tomorrow. Yeah, but let me, one thing I want to say, kind of summing up this part, and again, we didn't, we purposely didn't go into all the historical critical stuff and it's not because we don't know it, it's just, it's, it's there, and I mean, we're not. We don't. Uh, it's a little because I don't know. <laughs> stop. But stop. everybody knows I know. All. Yeah, you know a lot of stuff. But um, but I think the the process, folks. God bless them. Uh, to me, they they feel like the same as the people who have to get into the metaphysics of of Mary's perpetual virginity. They have a metaphysical problem that they need to solve that makes them say too much about something that clearly the gospel is more of a mystery. And I think in reality is, I mean, there is a certain 
thing that we all have to have intellectual. We need to bring a certain amount of intellectual integrity and faith, and I'm for that as much as anything. I think we as a podcast stand for that. But there is... We're taking stands. We're putting out position papers. <laughs> but you know what? Uh, re- You're going to see in your, like, those little voter guides, <laughs> new persuasive words, position papers. We're for intellectual integrity. But this is kind of why you know, fundamentalists and progressives are often the same. Uh, they, they commit the same kind of reduction. Progressives usually have better parties. Usually. Yeah, uh, not no, always. Often. Not yeah, always. No. And I always, uh, I always went to... When I would go to these national... Uh, you know, denominational things. I would always go to the progressives. Part oh, me it. too. Yeah, yeah, yeah me yeah. too. But the, uh, but it's also because the conservatives didn't invite me. That might have been the real reason. <laughs> I was not, I was usually invited to both. Well, that's right, because you just uh, one I politely. Yeah, you know, you were just a better. You were just nicer than I was. Nah, I just like parties. <laughs> it was true too. <laughs> anyway, but um, you know, to reduce the mysteries, ultimately to reduce our faith. You know, if you can figure it out, you don't need faith. And that's, I think, the presumptuous sin of both those who uh, come up with elaborate kind of doctrines to explain things they don't need to, as well as those who have a wonderful and sometimes puzzling need to rewrite the faith after their own image. Yeah, and I think also, you know, what Benedict notes in the beginning of this infancy narrative monograph is that he says, you know, exegesis certainly has to do the census literalis, right? Like it has mm-hmm. to figure out yeah, what the text absolutely. means to original time and place. But then also he's like, exegesis is done there. It has to deal with what the meaning is now because right. the text is part of a, a living faith. And that's not otherwise somebody completely alien to the faith in the hostile to it could do exegesis. I mean, there is a certain, and, and, and he does, and I, that is what the infancy narrative writers are doing right i mean they're they are taking the received early traditions of what happened and also situating it in what it means in in their here now and and in the eternal now in which we find ourselves yeah and and, in the in the curriculum in which they feel they need to preach to their community so you know whatever the you know narrative or whatever the the stories or saga or whatever the oral narrative that they begin with um they certainly are reshaping it for what they feel was the need of the church at their time. And, uh, you know, if if we have a text, if it's a holy text or if we have, a, you know, if we're a people of a book at all, we have to trust in some level the Holy Spirit was involved in that process as well. And still today. Still today. God bless. Part two tomorrow. This next song. This next one is the... Oldest diva of all. Her name is Mary. This is the way we do. After a good job in the city Working for the man every night and day And I never lost one minute of sleep What about the way that
Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, too.